Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. So, Matt, tell me about Linda from Honduras. Well, Linda is a woman that I didn't know very well when I was writing the book, but I knew she was from Honduras. And in Chapter 3, I have a study um, that I discuss about an immigration policy called TPS, or Temporary Protected Status. And it applies to immigrants from certain countries, including Honduras. So, um, in fact, I didn't include, I didn't think the policy was very exciting at the time. I included the study because I wanted to illustrate a certain statistical technique. Um, so, you know, it didn't, it didn't apply to me or anyone I knew, but I decided, let me ask Linda if she has heard about it. And I sort of didn't think that she, you know, that would, but it turns out not only has she heard about the policy, but she had an amazing story about her two nieces. One of them um, is under TPS. In other words, is, uh, is able to work legally and is protected from deportation while the other one isn't. And, so what is, what is the TPS policy? Why, why does the U.S. government grant it to some people and from some countries at some times and not, not others? Well, it's granted in cases where there is a natural disaster or, um, you know, armed conflict. Basically, it, it is to um, so that so people from those countries don't have to go back in in those um, in those disasters. But it's granted only for people who come in at certain times. And that is uh, to make sure that only people. Well. I suppose it's to make sure that people don't um, use it as a as a way of getting in. So the people who are here don't have to go back, but it's not going to allow more people from those countries to come in. So it's not an asylum type of thing. It's to prevent people who are already here from going back. So you get here, and then and then because you're saying I'm a refugee from some some disaster in my home country, then they may grant this status to you if you can sort of demonstrate that that was why you left. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. um, yeah, so I, I'm, I would imagine when they were debating the policy, they, they didn't want to make it so broad that it would apply to everyone. So it only applies to you if you come in basically before the disaster starts. And that happened. Oh, okay. Linda's. You're not actually a refugee from the disaster. It's more like we don't want to send you back into a disaster. That's exactly right. Oh, interesting. Okay. I didn't realize that. And um, anyway, so, so yeah, so the two nieces. Yeah, she came before. That was um, there. I, I I think it was a, um, a natural disaster in Honduras. She came before that. The other one came a few months afterwards, and so the first, the one who came in first, was protected. The one who came in afterwards was not protected, and it had a big impact. At first, I was asking her about labor market outcomes because that's what the study that I was uh, describing in the book chapter 
uh, focused on. So things like employment, wages, that study found that people who had TPS had higher wages, higher rates of employment, um, you know, as you'd expect. Um, and she confirmed that uh, the, the, the niece who has TPS has a full-time salary job with benefits. Um, you know, she works hard, but she's got a good life. The other niece who doesn't have it has an extremely difficult life. In terms of employment, she works below minimum wage jobs because she's an illegal, um, she's an unauthorized immigrant. And so she's, you know, her employers are able to take advantage of that. Uh, she has a very hard time finding work. And so, you know, these are some of the stories behind the data in a way. So we can see that, yes, on average, um, people with, who are unauthorized immigrants have lower wages and so on. But um, this, the personal stories really brings the, uh, the impacts to life. And she also told me about things about her life other than employment. For example, her, her personal life and her marriage. Um, one of her, uh, her, her husband was deported uh, after being falsely accused of a crime. And then um, she was left with uh, to, to care for her daughter by herself, living in constant fear of being deported herself. And so, you know, this this focuses you then on the other aspects of of the um, of the people in the story here, not just labor market outcomes, but family outcomes. And um, and so it was actually the first time in my career as a researcher that I, you know, really talked to people, um, you know, from everyday walks of life about the topics that I'm studying. And I think that's probably typical for, for many economists. You know, we have a very dispassionate way of looking at problems. And in one way, that's good. But on the other hand, if we do something very basic, like ask questions to people who may have firsthand experience with policies, not only can it, can it kind of open our eyes and also our hearts a little bit to the people we're studying, but it can also give us ideas for questions to ask. So, for example, one of the ways I want to extend that research is to look at these other outcomes. So, for example, uh, what about transportation? You know, um, do do people with TPS are they more likely to own cars and drive to work, whereas people without it, you know, are forced to take public transit? For example, those are these types of outcomes are things we can easily study, and uh, maybe I wouldn't have thought to study that without talking to to Linda. Right. Yeah. So, so that's exactly, that's exactly right. I was, and, and the reason uh, I, I asked you kind of uh, start with, uh, start with telling us about Linda is just to kind of orient people to, um, you know, what, what the, I mean, in a sense, it's one person, but it's also like the bigger picture, right? So what we're going to talk about today is uh, um, some statistical techniques and a, and a sort of quasi textbook that you've uh, written about them. Um, but I did want people to understand that like, these are, these are techniques to, that we use to understand things that are very important. Like, you know, I mean, in a certain sense, you know, of course, it's not too surprising to understand that that being uh, an unauthorized immigrant who does not have a legal right to work um, results in all sorts of, uh, you know, difficulties and, you know, makes your life really, really hard in America. Um, but also, you know, we have these techniques to, to 
quantify exactly how hard and in what ways. And um, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so just to back up, so hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Economics. This is a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Professor Matthew Holian, the chair of the economics department at San Jose State University, uh, which I just learned from your book is the the oldest oldest public university in California. Is that right? That's right. Um, I, I suppose there's a little bit of controversy there because the story is that uh, this first state university was started as a normal school for training teachers, and it was actually founded in San Francisco, but then it moved to San Jose. So I I wonder if San Francisco State might also claim the same legacy. I'm huh. not sure. But anyway, it's, it's not the oldest. I think it's the, it's a, the second oldest. Right. Well, I think University of San Francisco, you know, once you trace back these legacies, I mean, I think University of San Francisco, I think, uh, is 150 years old or so. But I think the first, you know, the first thing was not like a professor with a PhD teaching a, a group of uh, 20-year-old kids. It was probably more like, you know, one one Jesuit priest and a couple of uh, students getting a high school style education. Um, I, I may right. have the history wrong, but I think, things you know, were, we kind things of were quite different in the 1850s. Yeah, exactly. A lot of, uh, a lot of things have evolved since then. Um, anyway, so, uh, so we're, but we're um, as a, as a fellow San Franciscan um, and a uh, person from one of the very old, one of the many very old universities um, in here, in the, in the area, um, I wanted to uh, have you on. Um, so today we're going to be talking about your book, Data and the American Dream, Contemporary Social Controversies and the American Community Survey. Um, so we're recording this podcast just um, a week or two after David Carr, Josh Angrist, and Hito Imbens were awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics for their work uh, developing and applying techniques for making causal inferences from observational data. Um, and this book provides a, a practical learning by doing introduction to this sort of family of techniques, showing how they can be applied to important questions in social policy, such as, for instance, the, uh, the difference in life, out- life outcomes that can um, result from being given uh, legal working status in the United States versus uh, being denied that status. Um, and so, so this is a textbook, but those of you who aren't professors looking for a new textbook um, might be starting to tune out at this point, but please don't. Um, even if you're not the kind of person who would buy this book, my hope is that um, this podcast, um, just by talking about these techniques, will be a nice intro to these methods. Um, and maybe also will help to dispel a kind of common misconception that um, economics is, is only about things like finance or macroeconomic forecasting, um, but also can be used to address really important uh, topics that fall into, you know, domains of, of sociology and uh, politics um, that we all that you know, everyone cares about, um, like immigration, entrepreneurship, schooling, uh, childbearing decisions, um, and also things related to climate change, like energy and transportation uh, usage. So, um, Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. I really appreciate it, and especially the chance to um, that this would reach people who, who may not normally come across the book, because I did try to write it for a more general readership. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to write it at a level that would be accessible for um, students of all levels, including even high school students, but also for professionals working in the field, people like you, but people from other disciplines as well outside of economics. So, um, you know, that really from day one, when I started writing the book, um, you know, framed how I approached it. And um, it's a tough balancing act because on the other hand, 
it's probably most immediately useful for people in, who are who are taking classes or working with these techniques. But I hope that uh, it can appeal to others as well. Yeah, and I think it's it's nice that you you pitched it at an intro level. And obviously, you know, if you're more advanced, you can you can jump straight into you know some of the more technical details, or or as you indicate in the book, you could supplement with a textbook that you know does more of the theory um, and things like that uh, more formally. Um, but uh, I think you you know your book kind of fits into a, a little bit of an emerging trend in economics to you know get students into the data and the social issues much earlier, you know, rather than starting with like, here's our supply and demand curve and they cross and look, there's this wonderful consumer surplus and producer surplus. And Adam Smith, you know, with his invisible hand has told us that, you know, everything will be great if we're all libertarian and the government doesn't do anything. At least that's kind of the the kind of econ 101 version. That's what some people come away from the econ 101 version. I think, you know, of course, whenever anyone mentions this on Twitter, everyone says, but that's not what I teach on econ 101. But, right. but you know, one way or another, that that's what people seem to, in the general population still have the um, impression that uh, is the, the foundations of economics, whereas, you know, uh, as the recent Nobel Prize indicates, and, uh, you know, what we what people are doing now is, um, first of all, on the theory side, of course, the theory is much more um, developed of, you know, lots of different ways that markets can fail. And it's much more of a, you know, a set of, um, you know, conditional conclusions, or, you know, models that are useful working models for specific situations you have to figure out which one is the right model as opposed to there being a right model which maybe we just need to tweak for some context um, but also being much more uh, much more empirical um, from the start um, so so your, your book is heavily empirical and and um, a, a great thing you do is you you use a public data set uh, for it and then you've put posted all the um, code for someone who wants to learn how to like actually do this or, you know, uh, develop it in the class. So, so why don't you first tell us about um, the, the American Community Survey, just like where this data comes from? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would love to get back to the topic of the Nobel Prize, too, um, because mm-hmm. I think it, it's, um, you know, Josh Angrist in particular is someone who has made empirical research more important to, the, to economics and especially to intro economics, as you mentioned, but also made a con- made it make more sense, and and um, so I really struggled with econometrics when I was in graduate school. And when I came out, I discovered his Josh Angrist's writing, and it and it came to life for me, and um, and so that was a big inspiration for me in this book. But the American Community Survey is the nation's largest household survey, and it's conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau, and every year it reaches. Uh, about 3 million people. So they aim to sample 1% of the population every year. And my, my, the reason I picked this, that particular data set is because it's so large. And so here uh, at San Jose State, my university is in Silicon Valley. We're surrounded by tech firms and big data is, is the catchphrase of the day. I wanted to give the students exposure to working with large data sets, data sets that would push the limits of their, you know, processing, uh, their computer's processing abilities. So that was kind of my first reason for, for picking that data set. And it's publicly available, as you mentioned. The, I, uh, I learned the best place to access it is actually uh, a data center at the University of Minnesota, uh, which goes by the acronym IPMS. If you go to IPMS.org, you can very easily download the data. And it's the individual response data. So you'll see 
how and in how uh, uh, somebody who responds to this survey answered the questions about their gender, race, income, occupation, and so on. And so it's it's a really fascinating snapshot of the U.S. population. Number one, because it's so representative, you, you can find a sample of, for example, women from Honduras who came in between 2000 and 2001, and it'll be you know several hundred um, several hundred uh, respondents in 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 that in that subsample. So it's incredibly representative. Um, and that makes it well suited to study to studying many many topics. So is it uh, this thing that you mentioned? It, I mean, how is it anonymized? It seems like if you know that someone is, you know, uh, I mean, obviously if it's only one percent of the population, then it's not going to include everyone. But if you do find someone in the sample and say, "Hey, wait, I think I know her," right? Couldn't you uh, yeah. identify that person? How do they protect for that against That's that? A major concern. Number one of the Census Bureau. And then number two of, of IPMS because they want the Census Bureau to continue to share the data with it. So you have to um, acknowledge that you're not going to try to discover anyone's identity. Um, but it's not just that. They, of course, they remove all of the identifying information. Um, and you don't know their address. You only know the general area they live in. Um, so like roughly the zip code, it's actually called a public use microdata area. But Hmm. um, so you don't know that if somebody makes $100 million a year, then their income is going to be top coded. So you know, you're not going to be able to identify the the super rich that way. I mean, you, you know, if you think about it, you, you probably could in some cases, because if you look at their occupation, and their area, and then their income. Maybe you could identify like pro athletes. I don't know. I, I haven't tried. I, I uh, when I downloaded the data, I said I wouldn't, and I and I haven't. But um, but actually, there's a there's a raging debate right now about privacy, and the Census Bureau is either considering or they may have already decided to take additional steps to preserve the confidentiality of respondents. But the research community, by and large is not happy about that because their general, um, you know, feeling is that, look, no one has ever been identified, um, through this public use data. So all we're doing to take these additional steps is degrading the quality of the data. And again, that tech, that discussion is a little bit technical, but, um, to your question, um, it, it, first of all, it's really hard to do. I don't think there's any evidence that's ever been done, but it is, it is a major concern. Okay, so um, what kinds of questions does this uh, does the survey have in it? Well, it has, first of all, just the standard demographic and socioeconomic questions, like I mentioned, race, gender, um, income. It asks about your your home that you live in. How big is it? How many rooms does it have? Do you own it or rent it? Um, if you sold it today. And if you own it, how much do you think it would sell for? If you rent, how much do you pay in rent? It asks about your energy consumption. Um, the whole survey is about 15 pages long. And I reproduce that in, in the appendix to the book that you can download for free, the, the, the whole appendix and, uh, the, and the back matter of the book. And I think that's the best way to get familiar with the survey. If you really want to know 
all the quest, all the data or all the variables that are in the data set, take a look at the survey questionnaire. It's 15 pages long. Um, it asks where you were born, um, when you moved into your current home. From those questions, you can you can study migration because you know if somebody was born in a different country, um, you know they're an immigrant. If they were if they just moved to their home in the last year, uh, you know where they moved from. So you can study. Um, you know, migration, um, kind of internal migration, where people move from one state to the other state or even across town. Um, asks about health insurance. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the questions are, um, you know, when the Census Bureau puts them on, they take into account what are what do policymakers want to know. And I think um, the, the health insurance questions were put on you know, when, when the uh, Obamacare debate was, was, um, you know, ramping up. So there's, there's a lot of questions and they have to do with, I'd say the most important aspects of our lives. And that's great that all the questions are public. Cause I, you know, I think it's, it is, as you mentioned in the book can be, you know, it's important to, uh, or at least can be very valuable to actually read the language of the questions. Cause sometimes you can sort of look at something as a number in a, you know, in a spreadsheet or in a data set and, uh, think you know what it means, but then, you know, you've actually go and read the, go and read the question and think about what someone might actually be thinking as they'd answered it, or, you know, how they might have misunderstood it or whatever else, then uh, that can lead you in, uh, can help you understand things more, more deeply or, or, or avoid some kinds of errors. Yeah, exactly. That's why I always recommend um, to, to read those questions. And um, having focused on this one particular data set in writing the book, you know, also taught me a lot about the data. And, and I think even researchers in the field, that there are some common misunderstandings out there. For example, what does it mean um, if, there's, if there's a missing value or if the value is listed as NA? You know, you might mm-hmm. say not, not available. But in fact, that's not the case because if, if somebody just doesn't answer a question, say about income, Mm-hmm. Turns out what the Census Bureau does is they they try to predict what that would have been based on other characteristics that they do know about the people. So that's an imputed value. If you are not comfortable using those basically guesses from the Census Bureau, then there's an additional step you have to take. There's a data something called a data quality flag. I don't want to get too technical, mm-hmm. but um, point being, a lot of researchers probably think that an NA value means it's, they didn't answer the question when in fact it's not the case. Um, it, it, instead, it means that question doesn't apply to someone. It'll be like, how many hours a week do you work? Well, for someone who, who's unemployed, they would, it would say NA. That's, so these sorts of things. And, it, and also in the appendix, mm. I have a list of best practices. So thinking about the, um, the practitioner audience, you know, what are the top four or five things that they should know um, one is about these data quality flags. The other is, um, you know, about how to deal with inflation, how to deal with something called sample weights to make the data more representative of the population. Um, oh, and then for people who live in group quarters, like a college dorm or, uh, you know, prison or something like that, how to know whether we're talking about people in group quarters. So these are some of the technical details that, um, you know, a researcher needs to know to, to really be able to work effectively with the data, but aren't, you know, immediately apparent when you download the data. So I tried to make it simple. Great. Yeah. I think that's, you know, for, 
for a lot of things, you know, you want to jump to the, the fancy statistical technique, but I think uh, understanding the actual data that you have and, you know, how it was generated or gathered uh, is, is a really important first step that, uh, that it's, it's easy to neglect. All right, so let's, um, let's jump in and talk about some of the techniques in the book and the topics that you looked at with them. So, um, so you mentioned the, the case of, of Linda's two nieces, one of whom has you know, a, a reasonably good life because she's got this, this TPS uh, status, whereas um, the other one is, uh, is an undocumented worker and, and faces all the challenges and exploitation that that can involve. So um, I guess, so, so to, to be devil's advocate, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, I can read the newspapers or walk down the streets and see that it, it's crappy to be undocumented in America. So what, what is an economist, you know, why do we need an economist to get a survey of 1% of, of uh, people in the U.S. to, you know, what more can you get from that? Right. Certainly, um, I think the direction of those effects is obvious. And, and if that was the only point, you know, we wouldn't need to put, put all these resources into figuring it out. But it's also about the magnitude, you know, um, exactly how much less does, uh, do, do, they, do they make? Um, you know, how, how much more likely are they to be unemployed? And all these other things we can look at. I think it paints a picture of, you know, a really unequal society. In fact, you know, we, uh, we think of ourselves as, um, you know, to be kind of free of class in some ways, but, but it's not the case. You know, we have, we have a whole class of people in this country who live in the shadows and bringing them out of the shadows, you know, documenting exactly what their situation looks like, I think is, is important. So, Yes, the direction, you know, is, is obvious, but understanding the magnitude, I think, is, is important. So that would be my response to that. And, and most things are like that, um, where, you know, we, we have a sense that policy works in a certain way. But what's really important is to know how big is the impact. So like another question in the book is about were California's um, energy codes that, that try to make homes more energy efficient. Was that a good policy? Because it cost the home builders money to do things like put more insulation in the walls and, you know, um, all there's many, many different things that they had to do to comply, you know, in terms of uh, caulking and weather stripping and, you know, windows and um, things like that. So at the time, it was really expensive. I mean, the policy made it more expensive to build a home. But did it pay off? So it's not enough to just say, yes, the homes use less energy after that policy was passed. We need to know exactly how much energy, how much less did they use so that we can do um, the cost benefit analysis of the policy. Right. And actually, I do want to come back to that because that's a nice thing that um, you you cover, which uh, honestly, I don't think I ever covered in any of my training, like, you know, cost benefit analysis. In a certain sense, it's it's implicit in everything we do as economists. But in terms of the actual research training we get, it's uh, it's not something where we actually get into the the nuts and bolts of it. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, there's a lot of a lot of time in an academic paper. It may just be like I've shown that there is an effect in this direction and this is the magnitude. But um, a lot of the time, the reason, you know, the magnitude matters is because if we're, well, if we're looking at a policy, we want to know, well, if we're, you know, are we spending a billion dollars to achieve nothing or are we achieving a whole lot with it? Or if we're 
or maybe we're not spending money, but like you said, we're doing something that, you know, is slowing down housing growth in California and we have a housing crisis here. So that's, that's no joke. If fewer homes are being built because we're building them nicer uh, or, you know, more, not nice, just nicer, but more energy efficient, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's good for the environment, except then all the other people are sleeping on the street or leaving the state or, you know, whatever it is, um, mm-hmm. something's happening to them. So there are uh, costs of various kinds. So knowing what did we actually achieve with this policy um, is, is a really important thing. Um, but let's go back to um, to the the case of Linda. So you mentioned, I think, I think one thing actually that maybe maybe your your example sets it up to make it look a little bit too easy, or or, or kind of highlights that the uh, highlights the um, method that you use because you mentioned like Linda has two nieces who just like arrived in the U.S. a few months apart, but one of them was just because of the timing was eligible for this thing, and one of them wasn't, um, which kind of gets at how you solve this problem because. You know, what you don't want to do, right, is to just say, we're going to look at all, you know, undocumented people in the U.S. and compare them to all people who are properly documented, um, you know, even among immigrants, because there's so many other things about them, right? You know, the person with full documentation maybe has, you know, well, has family members here or is wealthier, better educated, right? There's so many, so many other things going on. Um, and there may also be unobservable things, but anyway, I'm telling you what, you know, so tell me, you already know this. Um, so tell me about, uh, you said in the, in the, um, the TPS case, you use that to introduce the, uh, the method called difference in differences. So, so tell us about this technique and, and how it, how it works out in this example. Yes. So, so, uh, difference in differences and other techniques as well that, that, um, that I discussed and, but mostly difference in differences because there's just so many studies that use it. It's by far the most popular method, um, um among studies and from economics that use these American community survey data. They all rely on the idea of a natural experiment and a natural experiment is different from a laboratory experiment because there's no experimenter assigning people into a control or treatment group. Instead, it natural experiment refers to a situation where some element of the policy environment has the effect of putting people into control and treatment groups, even though that wasn't the design. And so whether we believe the results from these difference in differences studies usually comes down to whether we think whatever was proposed as a natural experiment really was a natural experiment. Okay, so what about TPS? Um, It certainly is possible that after the natural disaster occurred in Honduras, people with less means came to the U.S. And so comparing them to the people who were already here they may not be identical except for the timing that they came, as you suggested, you know, that there might be differences between these people. So I'm, you know, it's not a, it's not necessarily, it's not a, a, a perfect experiment. And so maybe we don't believe that, that, um, that Linda's nieces are, are similar. Maybe we think the one that was here first, she was more ambitious that's why she got here first. The other one, she only came when she had to leave. It's possible. And even without TPS, their lives would have evolved differently with one of them being more successful than the other. It's certainly possible. Um, so 
on, on that hand, you, you might say the results that we find are kind of an upper bound on, on the impact of the policy. On the other hand, there are also statistical ways of controlling for some of those things, for some of the ways that people may differ, you know, uh, for example, in terms of their education level, their age, um, and, and that's a technique called, uh, I call it regression control or the use of control variables. So, um, you know, I think if you have a pretty compelling natural experiment, and I think TPS comes close, it's not perfect, um, and you combine that with a well-thought-out control variable strategy, you can get pretty close to uncovering the true causal impact of the policy. But it's important to recognize that there are limitations to it and to, to spell them out. And so, you know, generally, I think what that means is acknowledging we may have overstated the impact of the policy. So this, is, this may be an, up, an upward bound. But on the other hand, when I look at the results, they don't seem outrageously large to me. And so, you know, I, th- I have I, my feeling is that they're they're pretty reliable. If anything, you know, you might think the impacts will be a lot larger than they are. So but that's always the issue, you know, and and so when you look at a study that uses difference and differences, on one hand, you ask, is this a compelling natural experiment? And on the other hand, you ask um, did the authors make the case for that. And, and did they do enough um you know, to convince us that it's a good example. So for example, one thing the authors of that study did was looked at um, it, it immigrants from uh, Guatemala because Guatemala, there's no TPS. I mean, there's, there's no temporary protection for immigrants from Guatemala. And they found there's no difference among the um, immigrants from Guatemala who came in at, um, you know, between 2000 the, the cutoff, I think, was 2001. I, I forget at the moment. But before and after the cutoff period, there's no difference. But for, hundred, uh, for um, Salvadorian immigrants, that's what the study was actually about, who have TPS, there was a difference. So that's the sort of thing an author can do to make the case that their results really do uncover the causal effects. Great. Um, okay, so then... Um... What were some of the the key findings of of this study? Things that you, uh, so as you said, you know, maybe not all super surprising, but like you know, get some some estimates of the magnitude of like how big the effects were. Yeah. Um, so what what I was really important for me to do was to replicate some of the studies, so that when I would download the data myself, and then run the analysis on my computer with my own analysis files that I would get the same results. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes I didn't replicate the entire study and I just focused on a few results. I focused on the employment rates and um, I think it was about, uh, let me see, about 16%, um, 16 16.9%. This is in table 3.1 higher. So that means there's, uh, um, and this this was a sample of uh, women with less education, um, were 16.9% more likely to be unemployed. The other impacts these authors considered, which I don't really discuss in the book, had to do with their wages um, and uh, whether they're in the labor force, 
things along those lines. And I think that the impacts were around the same, you know, size. So around like 10 to 20% worse for people who are undocumented compared to people who, by the way, aren't necessarily documented, but they, well, in one sense, they, they have the work authorization and they're free from the threat of deportation, but they're not exactly here legally. So, um, anyway, that's the sort of, um, finding that they found. And, um, you know, and there's room for improving on, on that study, you know, in terms of, well, first of all, it's, it was published over like six or, you know, it's, it's almost a decade old in one way. So there's just been more data released since mm-hmm. then. So we can use more data. Um, we can use some, some different techniques that have been kind of more widely known since then and look at different outcomes. So I think I'm getting off track of your question. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, you no, know, actually, I think maybe my question was a little bit off track in the sense because, I mean, the point of your book is not to, you know, share the results of the specific studies with us um, as much as to, you know, illustrate how it can be used to, you know, provide answers in this question. Um, so, um, so actually, but maybe from here, why don't you talk about like then, you know, in a classroom context, um, you mentioned like, you know, for your own, for yourself, you replicated the study and like, you know, took the same raw data and, you know, figured out how to write the, write the code that would uh, do the exact same analysis and, you know, get to the extent possible, get the exact same numbers um, at the end. So, um, so, so how do you, uh, yeah. So what do you have, what do you have students do to, to learn from this? So, so uh, I've used this um, this approach in in several classes. One is a graduate level class. So many of the students were already have completed they had completed an economics major at the undergraduate level somewhere, and now they're at San Jose State pursuing a master's degree. So for them, I would ask them to find a study and then replicate part of it. And I have a whole section um, in the book uh, called uh, Finding um, Studies to Replicate, because picking the right study is the the key to doing well on that assignment. Um, Many authors, I shouldn't say many, some authors share their data in code. Some journals require the authors to um, post their data in code as a condition of publishing their article. So one of the pieces of advice I would give someone who, who had to replicate a study would be start with a study that you had the code for. But surprisingly, even having the code doesn't always make it a slam dunk to replicate because a lot of studies don't aren't even computationally reproducible. What that means is even if you have the code and data from the authors, it, it can't be run. And if it is run, it doesn't produce the results that they published. So there's actually quite a large movement, or maybe I should say growing movement in economics and across the social sciences on research transparency. And that's, I think for me, one of the areas I want to contribute to with this book. So students can learn a lot about doing research by replicating studies but also the discipline as a whole benefits when studies can be replicated and there's just more focus on, you know, really demanding that, that research is replicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people can kind of kick the tires and make sure it actually does what it says it can do and isn't, and then, and then also maybe go to the next step and, you know, you know, look at whether different 
you know, reasonable specifications, different control variables or cutoff dates or, or whatever it is, uh, don't just make the whole thing fall apart. Yeah, exactly. And, and that we can, we can learn more, we can increase the body of knowledge by building off of work that's already been done. Um, you know, instead of having to go back from square one and reinvent the wheel. So there's not a lot of that in economics. And, and I think it's going to require a little bit of a culture change, but, but we're getting there. And, and you can, um, you know, see this, uh, for example, in, in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, there was an article published last summer called Evidence on Research Transparency in Economics by Ed, Ed, Edward Miguel. And, um, and he's one of the economists who has um, been really pushing this issue. Um, and so, yeah, my hope is that a student, like a graduate student, would be able to pick a study and replicate it. But what about an undergraduate student who enters the class, has never really worked with statistical software before, there it's more of a challenge because first you have to get them to download the software. And the one that I focus on in the book is, is R and, um, and R studio, which I use together. I do have some of the files in Stata format, which is the most popular software used by economists. But for an undergraduate student, we have to first have them download the data. I mean the software, then download the data. Then, uh, one of the analysis files, which, which are called R scripts. And then once they have done that to run it and see if they can get the results, um, you know, the correct results. So that's a big challenge for a first time student. So I'm kind of happy if they can do that, you know, install everything and run it and then understand the code enough so that they can modify it in some way and do something original. That's the goal for a first semester course. And then having done that, the hope would be in the second semester course, they can hit the ground running with their research project that they've already started and, um, and do something more original. And so students are really surprised to hear from me that I, that I always begin a research project with old code. I never start with a blank screen mm. um, because for them, it, it feels like, you know, plagiarism or something like that. Right. But, but the point is that uh, there's no sense in rewriting all of these lines of code that are going to do the same thing. And so um, it's always about, for me, modifying some pre-existing code. And that is a surprise to students, but I think that's the way to teach them to do research is to start with something. It doesn't have to be a replication, but, you know, uh, open up a file and then begin to modify it to do what you want to do and, and um, you know, modify it. You might take a lot of modifications, but it's always going to be easier than just starting with a blank screen and typing every single line from the beginning. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. And then they get, yeah, they get a sense by, of what, what the finished product would look like, which they might not have time, you know, going from scratch to, to get to it in, uh, in a semester on their own. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it, it's also important to emphasize that, um, you know, I call it a replicate and extend approach. It's not going to be able to answer all questions. And so sometimes you have to, to, to be a lot more original. Um, but for someone who, who doesn't even know what the software is, you know, it's, it's so hard to get them to do meaningful research 
I think uh, that uh, for them, at least, this starting with a replication is is the best way to go. And and actually, I'm not alone. I I, I did a search, a Google search for replication, and looking at econometrics syllabi, and I'm finding many many uh, econometrics classes at the PhD level and, and undergraduate level, less so at the undergraduate level, but uh, more and more people are incorporating replication assignments. It's very common, for example, in PhD programs, I think in the third year for the students to work on a replication assignment. And, um, and uh, I think it's possible to bring that into the undergraduate curriculum as well. Yeah. I think it's a nice, you know, it's a nice sort of, uh, training wheels way to, to get into, get into the topic. Um, and yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't been deeply involved in like, um, changing the undergrad curriculum, but there is sort of a, um, well, as we mentioned, like a move towards getting, getting people involved with data earlier on, um, and not just, uh, not just with the theory. Um, so that, cause it does seem like people are really, well, they're intimidated by both. They're intimidated by the, the theory, especially as it becomes more mathematical. And then also, uh, differently intimidated by like the idea of programming because if they if they really thought they loved programming they might have you know gone and become a CS major but <laughs> instead they're doing something kind of in between with economics um, but I think it's easy to to scare people off which is un- unfortunate because you know obviously like there's there's deep programming and the stuff that like a real software engineer does but there's a lot of stuff where it's just you know just getting used to being careful with syntax and understanding some logic. Um, and then realizing that it's a matter of, you know, getting practice with a foreign language um, can can kind of get you there. And, and getting people over that hump to realize it's a really useful tool is uh, um, is a really important thing that I, I wish everyone uh, had as an experience as an undergraduate. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, it, it is intimidating for them. Um, but but hopefully, if at the end of the semester, they're able to produce some original results that will that will hopefully give them confidence but uh, I do find with empirical teaching students to do empirical analysis that you know there's so much more to know that they come away feeling like they actually have more questions that, than they had before and they don't feel very confident in it whereas with theory you know the top students can master that in the semester and feel like they really understood the model but with with empirical analysis, I mean, even the, even the people who are in the field doing this are are still learning. You know, there's always new and better ways to to do the work. But um, well, I guess that's the problem. It's like people take that econ 101 class and they say, "Aha, I know the answers," and then they spend the rest of their life telling everyone all the answers that they have decided that they know. Whereas uh, in the data class, they're like, oh, it's really hard to figure out what's going on. And I just barely did it. And maybe maybe just because one guy said he did a study or looked at some numbers, I shouldn't just uh, take that on faith. I mean, of course, properly taught, I mean, I, I do a lot of theory myself, like properly taught, people should be understanding that like the theory is not the answer. It's a way of, you know, framing, framing questions and figuring out what the issues are. But um, it doesn't seem like that's the way that it comes across or is retained for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, but one thing I would say, and coming back to this recent Nobel Prize, I, would, I thought it was so deserving to give it to those three economists. And for me in particular, Josh Angrist has been a really inspiring figure because when I was studying econometrics at Ohio State, I really struggled. You know, I, I had the top, some of the best 
econometrics professors, at least in terms of, you know, their publications and so on. But I did not know what was going on. And then finally, I, I read uh, Mastering Metrics and thought about this notion of an ideal experiment. And it just simplified things. And for a little while, I was kind of, you know, kind of thought that I, I missed out in graduate school, that, I, that nobody really explained it to me in such a simple way. But really what the Nobel Prize hit home for me is that actually when I was in graduate school, it wasn't widely known, you know, uh, um, the, the, um, the, the way to think about applied research, you know, it's not how it was taught really anywhere. So when I came out, I feel like students coming up nowadays have, have it a lot easier in that the whole enterprise of what are we trying to do? And the answer is we're trying to answer a specific causal question. It's just a lot clearer now. And so hopefully that makes econometrics less intimidating. And so I focus more on, for example, the coefficient estimates and making sure those are unbiased rather than what I think historically or traditionally has been taught in econometrics is, you know, are, do we have to adjust for homoscedasticity? Or, I mean, heteroscedasticity, or, and, you know, let's get the standard errors correct. And is it statistically significant? And those things are important, but they're not really interesting and they don't make the student understand, you know, exactly why are we doing this? It's, it's more of the technical details that were the focus and um, not the bigger picture. So I don't know. I'm not sure if you noticed, but in the book, I actually follow the notation from one of uh, one of Josh Angrist's books um, with Stephen Pischke, Mastering Metrics. And the goal is that a, st- a a person who's using mastering metrics in their class can substitute or um, complement it with my book, and the students won't have to learn two notations. They'll just, you know, have one common notation. But I use the language of ideal experiment and um, and a lot of the same uh, language um, that he uses. And uh, like I was saying, I found that really helpful in my career. And so hopefully it will also do the same for students who are coming up. Yeah, that's really useful. I definitely, I always have to remind myself that as a teacher, like, you know, if you, if I switch note, you know, something that seems like, oh, I'm just, you know, using a, whatever, an, a P instead of a pi or instead of an R, like even just like changing a letter relative to what I did in the last class, uh, you know, or using a, a different subscript, people can just completely get thrown off. And, and it happened to me too. It's not like, it's not like I'm smarter than them. It's just, you forget, you know, what it was like when you were sitting in that seat, desperately scribbling stuff down that, you know, someone was putting on the board and uh, like trying to process it and how, how little things like that, or like skipping a couple steps of algebra can, can, can throw people off. So that's great that you've got it, um, you know, unified with that. And I certainly have, you know, yeah, I think the, the teaching of econometrics, um, you know, or applied empirical statistics in general has, has gotten a lot better um, in recent decades just because they've sort of realized yeah just gotten i mean you know as hope you hope you'd hope everything gets taught better like you know probably whenever mm-hmm. the first guy was trying to learn newton's physics i would imagine you know that was a pretty dense text to wade through and like trying to you know you wouldn't you wouldn't send someone back to it now and say okay learn physics from the original you you know people have done it a bunch of times and they've realized oh you know what we can change this notation and make this clearer and uh you know, it's just a lot more intuitive and, and help people get to that, get to that end point of, of being able to, to solve problems with it 
um, much, much more efficiently. Um, and I think that's, that's so crucial considering how much of, you know, uh, our, our lives in modern society are based on statistical results or conclusions that people have drawn from statistics, you know, correctly or not. So, so how the more, uh, you know, the more any, any student in any discipline can, can, the further they can get in statistics and the more sophisticated they can become as a consumer, I think is, uh, is really, really crucial, even if they're not going to become a, a, an actual, you know, economist or other producer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, um, in the last few minutes, I wanted to ask you also, um, you covered, I, I think I mentioned this uh, earlier in the podcast, like, tell me, tell me what is cost benefit analysis? Because like, I feel like everyone throws that term around, um, you know, people who hate economists like to say, oh, economists only care about cost benefit analysis. So they don't care about stuff like the environment or the human heart or like the impact on human beings, um, which yeah. which economists kind of bridle against. Um, but because we do think we try to, you know, we can incorporate any kind of cost and benefit, at least in principle, mm-hmm. into into our analysis. But like, what do you, what is there actually to, um, you know, how do you actually do it in your, in your textbook? And like, what is actually as a as a as a discipline or something to be taught? Yeah. Well, um, you know, like most economists, I didn't really have any formal training in graduate school on cost benefit analysis, which is, you know, probably shocking to for non-economists to hear that. It's I mean, we there was one class in the agricultural economics program. I, I was I wanted to take it. I never did take it. It wasn't required. Very few students in my economics PhD program took it. But when I started teaching at San Jose State, the chair at the time convinced me to teach it or kind of inspired me to teach it. And I did, and I found I really liked it. So what it is, if, if someone says, I did a cost-benefit analysis, to me, that means you did a very specific type of analysis. There's a textbook by Boardman and co-authors that's, um, that's, that's, that's probably the, the industry standard textbook. And they have a list of about nine steps. And I kind of used that, slightly modified it, in, in the last chapter of my book. And so a, a cost benefit analysis is an analysis that follows those steps. And um, the end of it, the last step, one of the last steps is calculate the net present value of the policy. And so what that means is, um, so we talk about the benefits of the policy and the costs of the policy and the policy um, may have some upfront costs, but then yield benefits over time. So we're going to calculate those over time and 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 um, and calculate the present value of the of that. So in other words, putting all of the dollars in the same period um, was the policy worth it. So when someone says I did a cost benefit analysis, this this we hear this claim a lot in the literature. I always now look, did you calculate net present value? Because if you didn't, then it's probably not really a cost-benefit analysis. Sometimes people say cost-benefit analysis. They just mean, I just talked about costs and benefits, or I analyzed them mm-hmm. in some way. But, right. but I think people who are teaching this or really working in this field, they mean something very specific by it. And so, um, you know, when I was writing this book, I, you know, it th- Taking studies, describing studies, trying to do it in a way that would be exciting for a beginning student. I was thinking about my second book, and I'm like, maybe I'll do a study, a book like this, but taking the cost-benefit analyses that have been done and organizing those in a way. And then finally, I realized, you know what? Let's just make that one chapter of this book. And um, and so that's basically what I did. So that 
if you were teaching a cost a course in cost benefit analysis, you could do the same sort of thing, like replicate and extend. You could find you could ask the students to find a study that does a cost benefit analysis, repeat the calculations or replicate them, and then extend it in some way. You know, re- reanalyze it in some way. And I think it's a fascinating way to to learn the topic because you engage with real research and you 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 learn no, not only about the technique but how to do original research. So, um, I'm finding that there's a lot of room for improvement in in the ways that economists do cost benefit analysis, including just in the language that we use in des- in, in describing it. So I, in the book, um, I spend a lot of time on the glossary and making sure that the phrases and words that I use were defined so that somebody would know. And so I tried to write the book. I, I put terms in italics as a signal, go back. And if you don't know what that means, go back and read the definition because just like learning econometrics, learning cost benefit analysis comes with the whole language and you're not going to understand it if you don't know the words and the phrases. So, uh, you know, I think overall the, the book was the way I wrote it was inspired inspired by my experience teaching these topics and also struggling to learn them myself. So I tried to write it, um, you know, with, uh, with a kind of struggling student or, or even researcher who, who's kind of, uh, um, you know, needs to retool a little bit in mind could do so easily. Yeah. Well, that's, I think the, the, the best way to do it, right. You don't want to just, uh, sometimes those books written by the, uh, not not in the case of Angris, but like in general, you know, sometimes the book written by the Nobel Prize winner, you know, they're just uh, so smart and maybe sometimes even wedded to showing how smart that they are, they are that they don't uh, really do a good job of putting themselves in the shoes of the student who's, uh, you know, just starting out in the field. So that can be, uh, that can be really challenging. So I think it's, it's great that you, um, you know, built this book out of your own experience, um, teaching to, uh, to real people and, you know, also with, with reference to your own, uh, your own learning process. Indeed, um, right, and, well, we've gone a little bit. Sorry, I'm just uh, going to just mention yeah. one one little story along those lines. If in the very first page of the appendix, I I talk about physical harm <laughs> when I was a student, and I uh, I got frustrated and stabbed myself with a pencil by accident, <laughs> but just as a signal to the reader that this is hard and it takes patience, and so um, so that's in there. Yeah, I think that is really important. I think it's. Uh, uh, you know, the, you know, we all study from really smart people who make it look easy. And also once they've mastered it, then it does, it is easier for them. You know, it looks easier. And so it's really important to, um, yeah, I, I try to, I don't know if it's, if it's, if it's encouraging or not with my entering class of, uh, of grad students, uh, I always try to tell them that, you know, working on problem sets for me was always like, jumping out of an airplane, uh, without, um, with a parachute strapped on my back, but not really sure if the parachute would open and, you know, just <laughs> sort of being kind of falling in terror and confusion. And, you know, generally most of the time that the parachute would open and I'd finish the problem set in time, but it would be that, you know, I really wouldn't know. And you kind of, and that part of, you know, part of being good at, I think a lot of quantitative, especially quantitative skills where there's really like a right and a wrong. And if you're wrong, you can just be wildly wrong. And it seems like you've done nothing, even if you spent a lot of time on it. Um, then, uh, there, there's that extra level of terror and, uh, and being good at it involves getting used to that level of terror. Um, <laughs> and just sort of accepting that you're going to want to stab a pencil in your hand from time to time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's, you know, figuring out emotionally how to come to terms with that or whatever is, uh, is, uh, is part of it. Yes. Um, well said. 
Yeah. So, uh, well, thank you so much for your time. This has been a, a really great talk and I um, uh, really appreciate you coming on the uh, on the show. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. It's been my pleasure.